it was devastating and there's no tsunami written into your job description when you're the ambassador. Two o'clock in the morning, I get a call from my executive assistant saying, so there's been a big wave that has swamped parts of the coast and turn on CNN and that's when I grasped what has happened. I grew up swimming in the ocean in Sri Lanka, I competed as a swimmer. You never relate to <clears throat> anything like this. Relationship to it took a while to process. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 17th episode of Global. Welcome back, JT. Thank you very much. It's been a while, Chessie. Yeah, it has been a while. I've been out of the office for a month and a half. Well, and I've been galloping around Africa, but... Sounds like an adventure. Yes, it sounds like an adventure, <laughs> but at least we're going to be talking about something that has nothing to do with the Middle East, which you're a specialist in, and mm-hmm. nothing to do with Africa, which I claim to be a specialist in, but probably <laughs> I'm not. We're talking about Sri Lanka this week. I'm excited. This month, Sorry. My name is John Tomaszewski. I'm the Africa Regional Director for IRI and also a host of IRI's global podcast. And I'm Francesca Gordsunian, Program Officer for the Middle East and North Africa region. You call me JT and I call you Chessie, right? Yep. yep. Pretty much how it works. That's how it works on this team here. And if it's your first time tuning in to the Global Podcast, Global is a monthly podcast that features one country per month where we deliver an on-the-ground look at our rapidly changing world. And we have this great episode today. So we've already talked about it's going to be Sri Lanka. And um, this is a place of mystery, beauty. Um, It's also a place where there's been some serious conflict over the years. So Chessie, what do we need to know about Sri Lanka before we get to our guests? What are the fast facts? As an avid tea drinker, my favorite fast fact is that this country is actually formally known as Ceylon. It's an island nation that's located off the southeast coast of India and is also referred to as the teardrop of India or the pearl of the Indian Ocean. How pretty is that? Pretty Very pretty. poetic. It's pretty like pretty. It. It's pretty. <laughs> In terms of size, the island is actually slightly larger than West Virginia, more or less, I would okay. say. But population-wise, it's a very big country. The population is just under 21 million people. So to compare, that's similar to the size of Niger and Romania. Mm-hmm. It has two capitals. So there's Colombo, which is the commercial capital. And say it. You can say it, Chessie. Srijaya Wardenapura, Kote. Can you say that four times fast? Srijaya, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chessie, keep going with those fast facts. In terms of language, approximately three quarters of the country speak Sinhala, and then a quarter of the country speak Tamil. Ethnicity also plays an important role in Sri Lanka, but is also quite a sensitive topic, which is something that our guest speakers will go into a little bit later. In terms of the ethnic makeup, though, you have about three quarters of the population that's Sinhalese, and then approximately 11% that are Sri Lankan Tamil, 9% that are Sri Lankan Moors, and about 4% that are Indian Tamil. Yeah, Chessie, certainly ethnicity is a, is, a, is a very sensitive issue, but also religion as well, right? So yes, JT, religion is also um, a sensitive topic for Sri Lanka. There are approximately 70% of Buddhists in the country. Then you have your 12% of Hindus, and then 9% of Muslims, and then you have the remaining 7% that are Christian. Usually sensitivities in ethnic groups and religions result in uh, a very complicated government structure, but uh, what's the structure? I mean, thinking back to Bosnia-Herzegovina, which of course has a very complicated one to balance everything out. How about uh, Sri Lanka? Yeah, JT, so the Democratic Socialist Republic of Sri Lanka is a presidential republic, and recently there have been a lot of contentious shifts in the executive branch, and that's a topic that our guests are going to get into as well. All right, Chessie, those were the fast facts. Now let's talk about the fun facts. Okay, here's a fun fact for you. Do you like to cook, JT? All the time. Don't I look like I, uh, I love to cook? 
<laughs> well, if you like to cook with cinnamon, odds are your cinnamon does come from Sri Lanka because cinnamon originated there and Sri Lanka is currently the largest producer and exporter of the spice. Oh, wow. Yeah, Sri Lanka produces 90% of the world's true cinnamon. So you may not know this, but I am 25 going on 70 and I drink a lot of tea. Sri Lanka is the world's fourth largest producer of tea after China, India, and Kenya. So the country produces three varieties of tea. There's Ceylon black, Ceylon green, and Ceylon white tea. Ever heard of Lipton tea? Oh, yes. We have it in the office. Well, Lipton tea was actually founded in Sri Lanka in 1890. I'll be thinking of that today when I drink my iced tea. Here's another fun fact for you, JT. Sri Lanka is the only country where you can see the world's largest land mammal, the elephant, and the largest marine mammal, the blue whale, in a single day. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, JT, you rode an elephant when you were there, right? I've done that at, at a Sri Lankan wedding. Very cool. So for this next fun fact, I kind of cheated. You did. I spoke to one of our guests ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Yes, and he told me that Sri Lanka is the only place in the world that has non-migrating blue whales. Really? Yep. And they speak their own language. That's interesting. Speaking of things related to nature, thanks to the country's waterfalls and rivers, the majority of the power from the country is generated by hydropower. Isn't that cool? That is pretty cool. Okay, next, I want to talk about how cool Sri Lanka's flag is. So listeners, take out your iPhones right now, and I would suggest that you Google a picture of the Sri Lankan flag and look at everything that's on it. It's actually a pretty cool flag, and each symbol represents something different. The line on there represents Sinhalese ethnicity, so the strength of the nation and bravery. The sword demonstrates the sovereignty of the nation. The four bow leaves, symbolizing Buddhism and its influence on the country, stand for the four virtues of kindness, friendliness, happiness, and equanimity. The orange color in the flag signifies Sri Lankan Tamils, the green Sri Lankan Moors, and maroon the Sinhalese majority, and the yellow denotes other ethnic groups. This flag is also referred to as the lion flag. All right, JT, I think it's about that time to introduce our guest. Today, we will be talking to some really interesting people who have very cool insights on this country. Indeed. The first is uh, Constantino Xavier. He's a fellow at Carnegie India based in New Delhi. His research focuses on India's foreign policy with emphasis on relations with its neighboring countries and South Asian regional security. Um, which, of course, includes Sri Lanka. Previously, he worked at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. as a media correspondent in South Asia. He currently holds a Ph.D. in South Asian Studies from Johns Hopkins um, in the School of Advanced International Studies. Next, we have Ambassador Devinda Subasinghe. He served as the former ambassador to the United States and Mexico, has over 30 years of experience in U.S.-Asia relations, and previously served as a permanent observer to the Organization of the American States. Last but not least, we have Steve Seema. He's the resident program director for Sri Lanka. He's served with IRI since 2005. He's lived everywhere. Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Indonesia, Burma, Bangladesh. Yeah, he's traveled a lot for IRI and has lived in a lot of cool places. It's going to be great to talk to him. Absolutely. I'm excited. Let's get started. Now, Dr. Xavier, if we could ask you the impossible task of summarizing Sri Lanka's history in five minutes or less, where would you start? Oh, wow. <laughs> you really have this important foundational moment in 1948, uh, in which you have independence of Sri Lanka, at that point, Ceylon. Uh, and you have almost this reluctant independence. At some point, actually, most uh, Sri Lankans at that point in parliament and in electoral institutions were opposed to independence from Britain because they were in a very sweet spot. The country was doing well. They're very attached to Britain. And they were very British, many of the Sri Lankans at that point, in terms of their customs, in terms of their laws, in terms of their thinking. But that was sort of the first period in which you had a debate about what type of Sri Lankan 
Lanka and what type of country you wanted to have. And in many ways, after 48, you have a creeping debate about the role of minorities in the country uh, and what should be the official language, what should be access to government positions. And you had a tradition in which the Tamil minority, um, different Tamil minorities, if you want, and particularly one Tamil minority, which had been uh, had a lot of access to government institutions and was doing pretty well in bureaucracy, administration, uh, in many ways overrepresented uh, in government institutions. And there was a lot of debate about their role. And you had a class element of the Singhala majority um, and also sort of a, an ethnic element and a linguistic element among the majority saying this country should have an affirmative action policy and a special role for this majority. This is a country for the majority in which the minority needs to back down in some ways uh, and needs to sort of take on a lesser important role. And because of electoral issues and political issues, as uh, Sri Lanka then becomes a, a democracy and votes, you have the temptation, of course, for political leaders from the majority to rally their uh, group under this nationalist, ethno-nationalist umbrella and saying, we will create a country for you. We will empower you economically. We will create special rights uh, for you to access government institutions, which opens that box of conflict uh, and tensions with the minority, uh, which really come down to 1956, in which the government passes a law and saying, Singhala is going to be the official language of the country and not Tamil, and actually sort of sidelining the minority and then creating a lot of resentment among the minority. So that has been really the leitmotif of this country since then. Ambassador, what have been the biggest changes in Sri Lanka since your time growing up there? When I grew up, I was the post-independence generation in Sri Lanka, had its independence in 1948. Um, we were well integrated. My Tamil friends and Muslim friends, we all spoke English. We could communicate with each other. But with the uh, new language uh, law that was imposed in 1950s, the English usage was de-emphasized. Singhala uh, students studied in Singhala, Tamils in Tamil, and the Muslims in Tamil or Singhala English. So there was streaming that occurred that separated the communities. That I think had a lot to do, much to do with the separation of the communities as much as anything else. The intercommunication, the intercommunal communication, is has been. To put a dent in it. Dr. Xavier, what sparked the civil war that started in 1983 and only recently ended in 2009? The origins of the conflict are most interesting ones because once, as you know, conflict begins, you have deeply entrenched interests, emotions, and everything escalates really. But the, the period of the 60s and 70s is interesting. Why? Because you, there you have a chance to work with the moderate Tamils. You have the federal party, which was a party of the Tamils at that point, which were you know intellectuals, who were interested in parliamentary democracy, saying, please give us some rights. We want to be absolute. We don't want to be independent. That's what they're saying, the Tamils in the 1960s. We don't want to be separate from Sri Lanka. We just want to be part of the nation, right? This is a minority saying, we want to be part of the nation. Uh, and not being allowed in many ways and being discriminated and therefore, you know, obviously radicalizing further and further. So the Indian advice actually comes true in the 70s because you have more and more younger generation Tamils saying we have tried, you know, our fathers and mothers have tried, they have failed through a peaceful way to be part of the nation. So let's just be part, let's be part of another nation, right? 
And you have the rise of a, a more radical group, which obviously for tactical motives is able to speak to the younger people and saying the only way is an armed struggle, initially with very leftist credentials, but an armed struggle against the Tamil against the Shingala nation. This is an ethnic issue and we will take up weapons and fight for a separate Tamil Ilam. Right, which then by the late 70s radicalizes the whole issue. And then in the 80s, you have really the beginning of mass violence between the Shingala state and a separatist group which consolidates around the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Ilam, LTTE, which becomes a dominant faction, uh, which really develops uh, violence as a strategy, right? And deep violence, right? Uh, killing variety of uh, political elected officers undermining Tamils who are still pushing for a moderate peaceful solution killing them and targeted killings which went on till the 2000s so ambassador i want to pause our conversation about the civil war for a moment because during your tenure as sri lankan ambassador to the us the 2004 tsunami occurred can you tell us more about that time it was devastating and there's no tsunami written into your job description when you're the ambassador uh, you get the news that this big tidal wave had hit the country coast. Where were you when you first It wasn't a 3 a.m. call. It was a 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning call, day after oh, Christmas, wow. the Christmas uh, dinner. Yeah, because it was around it Christmas It was uh, Sunday morning after Christmas, uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. I get a call from my executive assistant saying, so there's been a big wave that has swamped parts of the coast and turned on CNN. And that's when I grasped what has happened. I grew up swimming in the ocean in Sri Lanka competed as a swimmer. You never relate to <clears throat> anything like this. So it took a couple of minutes for me to process and digest what had happened. Mm -hmm. And it's a once in a lifetime or there's very little record of any tidal waves or tsunamis in Sri Lanka. So the re relationship to it took a while to process. And what was your role as ambassador during that time? So you mentioned raising um, relief funds and humanitarian funds. How did you go about doing that in D.C.? Mostly bilaterally. The, the State Department under Mr. Armitage as Deputy Secretary of State set up a working group with DOD that coordinated both the relief supplies and surveys. There were helicopters needed to survey the damage. U.S. Pacific Command mobilized uh, within 48 hours. And then came the assistance, mostly bilateral donors, mm -hmm. a lot of philanthropic interest, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of just citizens groups calling and saying, how can we help? So the embassy had to go into a staff of five diplomatic staff. We were on overload, brought in a lot of volunteers and geared up to help as best as we could. Dr. Xavier, who is Mahinda Rajapaksa and how did he come to power in 2005? Well, that brings us to the present, or oh, well, not the present, that's already 13 years ago, I guess. Yeah. But uh, 2005, uh, you know, you had an attempt um, first by India in 87, in, from 83 onwards to mediate. Uh, India supported rebels, Tamil rebels at some point. It armed them uh, because it wanted to use them as a leverage to on Colombo on the on the Sri Lankan state to say please you know work with them that didn't work out well as we know uh, but India's role was always to try to mediate that conflict because it saw a more peaceful stable inclusive Sri Lanka as in being in its interests that didn't always work out well and it did a lot of mistakes in its policies but it tried really hard it goes between eighty three and eighty seven several times into Sri Lanka to develop constitutional amendments to propose solutions to the conflict it mediates uh, then in eighty seven it actually imposes a military intervention in Sri Lanka and actually 
she coerces, and it's sort of the Sri Lankan president signs on to it, but against his will. Uh, and you have, you know, military troop, military, uh, the military of India being deployed to Sri Lanka uh, in terms of trying to solve and enforce a solution, which, as we know and history tells us, never really works out well. So by March 1990, you have the Indian army withdrawing with over 1,000 casualties, both the Tamil uh, separatists and the government of Sri Lanka siding on the being on the same side and saying first Indians must get out and then of course starting to fight against each other again as they leave uh, in the 1990s. But in, what you have is 2001 and two, the beginning of a peace process uh, and with mediation from Japan and other uh, actors, India stays at the sidelines, says we don't want to get involved in there, we paid our price, we're slightly traumatized by all this, and we're going to look from the sides of what's happening. In 2001 and two and six, you have a peace process, which actually is the last confirming element that at that point, the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Ilam, LTTE, uh, are not amenable to working out a peaceful settlement with the Sri Lankan state. And India really had very little hope, but it had some hope they could be worked with. Some people in the government still believe they could be turned around. By 2006, 5, 6, or 4, actually onwards, it becomes quite clear that the Tigers are not going to develop any type of outreach, any commitment to free and fair elections. They keep targeting uh, elected of, uh, officials in the Sri Lankan state. They keep sidelining moderate Tamils and killing them. Uh, it becomes really a proto-fascist state in the northern and eastern part of Sri Lanka. That creates problems because it creates you know, protracted conflict and becomes quite clear that you cannot work with them uh, and they will also fight till the end. And that's when you have also on the Sri Lankan side interesting dynamics of people saying peace process is utterly useless. We need a military or hardball approach to defeat this insurgent group. So this is where Mahinda Rajapaksa comes in, right? And that's where Mahinda Rajapaksa comes in. He was able to develop the speech. He was developed to de develop the tools on the army front, on the military side, on the strategy side, on the political side, on the diplomatic side internationally to craft the environment in which the Sri Lankan state could finally do what it had attempted to do since the 1980s, which is defeat this insurgent group. And he creates that environment and it's really a master, masterly strategy of at a variety of levels to defeat that because India had often opposed this. Uh, the Sri Lankan state had often been close to, you know, defeating the insurgents militarily, but India had always stepped in and said, no, you cannot do this. Or there had been some, you know, international pressure. And for the first time, all sort of stars were aligned uh, due to a lot of work in terms of tactics and strategy, diplomacy, defense, military, etc., to defeat the tigers of Tamil Ilam. And from 2006 onwards, you have the beginning of a military offensive, uh, which closes in and ends in May 2009 with the total capitulation of the Tigers of Tamil Ilam, uh, with a lot of collateral damage, a lot of tragic events towards the end. Uh, but in the event, you finally create the conditions for a peaceful Sri Lanka, which at least allow the Sri Lankan state to have, again, a debate about what it should look like and how this minority should be enfranchised or not in the larger polity of Sri Lanka. So, Steve, the war ends in 2009. I think the next major event to hit is the 2015 snap elections. What brought these on? Following the war, um, former President Mahinda Rajapaksa, um, you know, there was basically a closing of kind of democratic space kind of following uh, the end of the war. Um, and it was actually a move by Mahinda Raj Rajapaksa to kind of consolidate power. Um, and it was kind of a surprise to, I think, people in Sri Lanka and the international community 
that you know when he called for early presidential elections that that he ended up losing um, and then later uh, the United National Party was the party you know that won parliamentary elections. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us more about the political parties in power now? Politics is kind of dominated by two political parties, the United National Party, which is a center-right party, um, and the Sri Lanka Freedom Party. Uh, you also have uh, the Tamil National Alliance, which is kind of the political umbrella uh, that represents uh, Tamil interests. So Dr. Xavier, it sounds like the two main parties came together to oust Mahinda Rajapaksa. How did that happen? There was a lot of discontent uh, with Mahindra Rajapaksa's government uh, on finances, uh, on domestic investments, on redistribution of growth, uh, on alignments with China and uh, some shady deals with China. So I think that was one of the motives. And I think that was really what brought this grand coalition together. In some ways, you know, external influence, there's a lot of talk about how, what external influence there was in supporting that coalition. But at least we know that no one was really shedding crocodile tears, tears in 2015 for the end of Mahinda Rajapaksa's term. Dr. Xavier, who's the current president and what's his background? I mean, he, you know, came in many ways, I mean, for those from outside, uh, out of nowhere and is many candidates who are consensual candidates can also be weak candidates sometimes, right? Because he was acceptable to a lot of people. And he came from uh, President Rajapaksa's internal circle of confidence. He had worked, he had served as a minister uh, uh, in his uh, government. So you have him showing up as a consensus candidate, which was very good at that point because everyone agreed to him, but also sometimes uh, may have since then uh, hindered the possibility of the government taking strong positions in some things, right? Because if such a grand coalition of different forces. So Steve, can you go a little bit more in depth about the constitutional reforms that these political parties are working towards? As I mentioned, we're kind of in still in the process of constitutional reform. And so there's a lot of, you know, actually this this debate still going on and is quite heated about kind of what reforms would be taken. I mean, things that kind of were promised uh, to the Sri Lankans, kind of this national unity government were things like um, abolishing the executive presidency. Um, there's, you know, there's also devolution is included um, and kind of what that looks like, you know, I think isn't clear to people at this time. But there was, you know, this national unity government was was elected with support from minorities in the country. And so that kind of was a big part of the platform was about kind of reconciliation and devolution of power. And so it will be interesting to kind of see how that develops. But it's not clear kind of at this time kind of what exactly we're going to what exactly constitutional reform would look like. Now, Dr. Xavier, a lot of international attention has been paid towards this Chinese-funded port infrastructure project in Sri Lanka. Could you explain to our listeners what has happened? Bad loans, you know, cost dearly in the long term, whether we know that at an individual person level and same go, the same goes for states. Uh, when you take on bad loans, which even worse, kick in only 10 years later, you live a great life for 10 years and suddenly you get those banknotes and you have to start paying back and you start realizing that that actually uh, may have huge costs you did not foresee, right? In terms of your leverage, your independence, your financial autonomy. And again, for states, that go, it's the same way. You have in Sri Lanka a variety of loans which were taken on in the late 2000s by President Mahinda Rajapaksa, which uh, were loans, for example, with the Chinese at interest rates of around 5 to 6% when World Bank rates comparatively go by 1 to 3%. Uh, interestingly, you, know, you accepted these loans. You said, great, we'll pay them back down the road. Uh, the ch- with those loans, you build huge infrastructure projects, uh, which then you were not able to maintain and finance. And suddenly when 
when the loans started kicking in, which was two, three years ago, and Sri Lanka now has one of the biggest debt-to-GDP ratios in Asia, you have a difficulty of paying back, and therefore, surprise, surprise, you have the Chinese state coming and saying, well, you can't pay us back, but we want every last cent of this, uh, but you can pay us in another way by, for example, leasing out those projects and letting us own those projects for, surprise, surprise, 99 years in the case of the port of Hambatota, which the Chinese built. 99 years surprise because that's exactly uh, the uh, period for which Brit- the British took on Hong Kong as a lease and the port in the early 20th century, in which the Chinese see today as one of the sort of tragic moments of Chinese history in which, you know, the colonial power of Britain came in and took a piece of Chinese land and ran it for 99 years and it was a great moment of humiliation. Well, here you have China now operating uh, a port for for the next 99 years because it was able to translate its economic leverage and its debt into, uh, you know, assets in Sri Lanka, which again will, I think, uh, translate into political influence and security influence in the country. And it's very important also for other countries like the United States, India, Japan, uh, to come up with alternatives and help these countries in developing sustainable institutions, sustainable growth in the long term uh, that allows them to, you know, develop a vision for their country that is much more stable than getting entangled in these debt traps with China. Okay, Steve, in February 2018, Sri Lanka went through local elections as well. Can you tell us more about that? The local government elections that were held in February were significant because they were kind of the first electoral test of the national unity government uh, that came into power in, in 2015. And so these elections were kind of viewed as national elections, even though they were uh, local government elections. And the, the local government elections had been postponed for technical reasons, but people viewed that they were also being postponed for political reasons. When the elections actually did happen, the parties basically competed as if they, they were national elections. You had the president and the prime minister out campaigning. You had ministers out campaigning. It was really national issues that were a focus, things like corruption, uh, the good governance platform, but it was kind of national issues that were being debated for local government elections, and it was something that different than I had seen in, in other countries that I had worked in. Mm-hmm. It was the largest electoral event in the history of Sri Lanka. Um, 340 local government bodies were held on the same day. You know, more than 8,000 seats were up for grabs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there was more than 50,000 candidates that were running. Uh, the, elections, <laughs> the elections were also conducted under a new electoral system. And so they were also significant for that. They had moved to a mixed member proportional representation system. I remember learning about that in math class. That was not fun. <laughs> okay. And a 25% women's quota uh, was introduced. And so the elections were also significant from that standpoint because they'll be looking at, you know, using this electoral system in future, in provincial elections um, and national elections possibly. And so... You know, the 25% women's quota was important because uh, women's representation in Sri Lanka is quite low, despite having kind of national women leaders for a a major part of the country's history. Um, You know, at the local government level, it's less than 2% women's representation. And so a 25% quota would would have a significant impact in kind of women's participation at the local level. And we'll see if that's introduced, you know, at the provincial level and at the national election, uh, at the national level. Steve, so what was the result of the election? Uh, the two major parties, the United National Party and the Sri Lanka Freedom Party, despite governing jointly, they competed separately. And then there was, to add to the uncertainty, uh, you had kind of a third political force. The Sri Lanka Freedom Party 
which is basically s- split into two camps. There's the pro-President Sirasena camp and the pro-former President Rajapaksa camp. Mm-hmm. Mahinda Rajapaksa had formed his own proxy party, uh, the SLPP, um, and, he com- and he competed local government elections as the SLPP, which was, you know, and so you had the, the, the Sri Lanka Freedom Party was divided going into the elections. And I think the the UNP thought that, you know, a divided SLFP would play to, it to their benefit. An observer perspective, you know, we weren't sure kind of what impact this would have on the SLFP. But basically what happened was Mahindra Rajapaksa's faction did overwhelmingly well in the election. They they won more than 45% of the vote, about 45% of the vote, uh, but took about 240 of the 340 local, go- local, bo- local government bodies. And so this really kind of has shaken the national unity government. You know, it was clear that the people went out and there was an expression that, you know, they don't think that the national unity government was kind of moving forward on its you know, on its campaign promises. That could be economic, that could be reconciliation, that could be corruption, but really kind of a show of kind of dissatisfaction with the national unity government. You know, does that mean it's a comeback of, you know, former authoritarian leader Mahindra Rajapaksa? You know, in my opinion, I, don't, I, I wouldn't call it a comeback of Rajapaksa. I would say, you know, it was people who were showing their dissatisfaction to the national unity government. And so hopefully they still have two years to live up to some of their campaign promises. Ambassador, can you tell me more about, so recently, if I'm not mistaken, there was a state of emergency, right, in Sri Lanka. Can you talk a bit more about that? What led up to it? Why did it happen? Do you see it being renewed? Because that often happens, right, when there's a state of emergency. Right. No, fortunately, this was one-off limited uh, emergency that was declared. The emergency laws in Sri Lanka have been revised substantially after the end of the conflict. Parliament has to approve after a certain time, and it cannot be endlessly continued. So there's some checks and balances in the legislature that prevent it. The trigger for that uh, was violence, anti-Muslim violence. There have been a radicalization, if I may call that word, uh, of uh, Buddhism in Sri Lanka. I'm a Buddhist, uh, studied under a very venerable monk uh, in, in Colombo. Uh, but there have been, during the conflict, there has been a kind of radicalization or extremism on the Buddhist, uh, among some of the Buddhist monks. I don't believe they are spiritual monks. They can't be because Buddhism does, is a nonviolent uh, religion. What do you think led to that rise in radicalization among Buddhists? I think it's a fear of the minority, uh, the fear of the other, although the majority Sinhalese are a majority and but the conflict with the minority Tamil-led LTTE was not an ethnic conflict. It was not a religious conflict. It was pure and simple. It started off on social issues and economic issues and ended up being a full-fledged uh, terrorist organization. So it's the, the carryover of these insecurities of the majority versus the minorities. Sri Lanka has always been a moderate Islamic country. The minority has been very integrated. That's been changing. The winds of uh, fundamental Islam have been blowing through Sri Lanka as well. Uh, and there's, there's anecdotal information that some of the radical groups in the Middle East are also funding various madrasas and, and uh, mosques in, Sri La- in the eastern coast, eastern province of Sri Lanka. It's not a huge issue. Uh, but there is some radicalization going on in, within the country that's not surfaced in any consistent way. So there's been this there's been a push and pull 
within the Muslim, uh, against the Muslim community on some of these issues as well. So from a domestic policy perspective, is, is the Sri Lankan government taking any steps to counter this? Or what's its approach to I dealing with I can't speak this? to what the Sri Lankan government is doing. I'm not in, right now, I don't have any eyes on it. But I think, yes, they're very aware of it. Uh, it's not a hot button issue at the moment, but these flare, uh, kind of anti-Muslim riots have been happening since, not riots, attacks have been happening in 2014. And then this year there were two incidents and a lot of uh, fake news about what the Muslims are doing to the Sinhalese get spread. Uh, social media sites were uh, aflame with these rhetoric and fake news. And that really uh, kind of, I don't think that was the cause of it, but it certainly fanned the flames of uh, the anti-Muslim uh, mm-hmm. activities. And that's a global phenomenon that we've been seeing, I think, it is. around the world. It's it not is. just unique to Sri Lanka. Yes, and there were a couple of uh, extremists or conservative or fundamentalists, which are, would be, you're comfortable with Buddhist organizations that were really deploying social media to uh, propagate their hatred and uh, hate speech mm-hmm. and inciting mm-hmm. violence. So, Steve, you've been in Colombo for about a year now, I think, for IRI. Can you tell us more about what IRI does there? IRI is implementing a local governance program. The main focuses of the projects will, will be are of the project will be working with these newly elected councillors that were just elected at the local government level. Um, and so, one of the things with the change in the electoral system was the number of seats basically doubled. Um, and so there'll be a lot of newly elected people, and then we have the 25% women quota, and so we'll have considerably uh, more women. And so we'll be providing capacity building to these newly elected local government officials on things like constituent outreach, citizen engagement, topics like that. So Steve, what makes this work important now? So the local government bodies had been delayed, or had been basically dissolved for two years. Mm -hmm. And so you had civil servants who were filling the role of of Uh, elected elected officials. And so it will be the first time in basically two years that there will be elected representatives at the local government level. Serving in these roles. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. From a governance perspective, that's important um, because it's really these elected representatives that ensure kind of basic service delivery, things like trash pickup and street cleaning and stuff like that. And so I think... You know, turnout for the elections was was high. It was about seventy percent, I believe. That's extremely uh, high. Yeah, for local uh, for elections. Local election. Yeah, I mean, and and I think that demonstrates again, people were kind of viewing this almost like a national election. People wanted to, you know, have elected representatives at the local government level, people that they could hold accountable. You know, well, civil servants are great and they can implement things. Having an elected representative is different, um, and you have someone who you can really hold accountable. Dr. Xavier, what is Sri Lanka's relationship with India? Well, I touched on this, some of these issues before on India-Sri Lanka, but I think, uh, you know, now you have for the first time in the region, uh, you know, India is a big state, right? And it's a state that is a regional power and all regional powers are hated by their small neighbors, right? Or their uh, small states generally are concerned about that. The U.S. faced this in Central America. Uh, India faces this in South Asia with its neighboring countries of Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, the Maldives. And that's natural, right? You're always going to be afraid of the big elephant in the room. Uh, and India has done policy decisions which have been very detrimental to some of these neighboring countries. It's interfered in some of these countries. It's changed governments in some of these gov- countries. It's not been able 
will deliver on economic assistance and aid and infrastructure and uh, connectivity the way it should have been doing over the last decades. But it's finally understanding uh, in India, I think India is finally understanding that it needs to bring these countries on board and create connectivity with these countries. And similarly, the smaller countries, after sometimes five years, 10 years, in the case of Burma, 15 years, siding with the Chinese on a variety of issues, they're realizing there's actually advantages of working with the Indians on some of these issues. And that India will not be able to deliver the same that China does. And that's actually not desirable even. That India has distinct advantages in terms of, say, capacity building uh, of human resources in these countries and developing institutions and developing small-scale projects that are sustainable and locally rooted, right? That is the work which I think now you see being requested by these small states. They're actually, for the first time, sort of saying... Hey, New Delhi, where are you, right? We're tired of working with China, and there's some things you could do too, uh, and uh, we're ready to discuss that. And similarly, I think they're approaching also the United States, Japan, which I mentioned before, and I think the burden lies with these countries now, Japan, India, the United States, to deliver more, better uh, than China does in these countries. And instead of just saying, don't go to the Chinese, and denying Sri Lanka, Nepal, in this case Sri Lanka, the capacity to work with the Chinese. Let them work with the Chinese on what they wish, but offer alternatives which are sustainable, long-term, and allow these countries to really develop strong institutions, strong rule of law, strong rule of law, strong um, pluralist values, if you want, that allow these countries to sort of develop more sustainably in the long-term. Now, Ambassador, I want to talk a bit more about Sri Lanka today. What is... Sri Lanka's foreign policy like today? Sri Lanka's foreign policy is to act as a platform and a convener in the Indian Ocean Mm -hmm. to ensure that the Indian Ocean stays free of the issues that face the South China Sea. Uh, Sri Lanka, of course, has has very close direct ties with India. Uh, That goes back to the founding of Buddhism and the propagation of Buddhism, the proximity, geographic proximity, and similarly with China as well. Uh, both cultural and religious links, trading links, going historically back to the 1400s, at least, or even before. Uh, And, of course, a very strong shared values relationship with the U.S., democracy, markets, access, global trade. Um, So the current administration, as I observe it, I'm not a part of it, um, is attempting to balance the competing interests in in the Indian Ocean as a maritime space to keep it free and open for all users. Steve, when are the next elections in Sri Lanka? You have presidential elections and parliamentary elections coming up in 2020. And so, you know, given the outcome of the recent local government elections, you know, I think a lot of people will be looking at, one, can the national unity government even make it to 2020? Um, What do you think? I think it will. I think that the prime minister and I think President Sirisena understand that if they want to move ahead on the agenda that they were elected on, that the only vehicle is the national unity government, that a UNP, you know, even if UNP was able to form its own government, um, they won't have the numbers in the parliament to really make any major reforms. Um, And so I think, at least for now, they're going to to try to kind of trudge ahead. But Mahinda Rajapaksa is a formidable kind of opposition candidate and, uh, you know, at the grassroots level still has a lot of support. He's calling for snap elections to be called. He's saying that the local government elections were a referendum and new, you know, snap elections should be called. Does he have support for that? It's hard to say. I I, I don't think that, I would say no. Um, You know, I think he's, you know, even within kind of the coming weeks, he's said that he, he was going to 
bring people to the streets to to call for snap elections. But, you know, he does have a lot of grassroots support, and I kind of wouldn't underestimate his ability to bring people to the streets. But I think that there's still support for kind of the core things that this national unity government was was elected on. And so while, you know, people may be frustrated with the economy and people may be frustrated with corruption, that people really, you know, do want to see Sri Lanka, you know, the Sri Lankan people want to see this kind of move forward. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, just even the the atmosphere uh, in Sri Lanka has changed so much even post-2015, kind of, you know, from a, a more closed society where people were more cautious about talking about, you know, freedom of expression was a little bit more curtailed that, you know, that's gone. I mean, checkpoints and stuff that, you know, we hear about, you know, that existed prior to, you know, under the Rajapaksa regime, that type of stuff, you know, more freedom of movement. You know, there, there are still issues for sure. But, you know, I, I would say, you know, as far as kind of the at, the, the political atmosphere of the country is, is, is much more open. Ambassador, in your opinion, what are the greatest challenges facing Sri Lanka in the next few years to come? It's, I think, rebuilding democracy. A conflict that lasted almost a generation has really decayed institutions because you've been governing, running a country under emergency laws or practically with the military deployed into many aspects of life. You've got to bring the military out of those uh, Involvements, it's happening more increasingly. Um, that's number one. The institutions have decayed. The economy, miraculously, the free market reforms of 1977 withstood the test of a full-blown insurrection and a terrorism campaign. Uh, the economy grew, but it's still very concentrated in parts of the country. It has to. The markets have to be opened. I think the economic challenges are very significant. To continue with the economic reforms so that uh, the benefits of uh, markets and trade and investment is be- more uh, broadly felt. Uh, third is the in bringing reconciliation among the ethnic groups. Uh, and fourth, I would say, is the uh, international global scene and foreign policy, which is taking on a new challenge with the increasing focus uh, on the great power rivalry in the Indian Ocean. It's a tall order. It is a tall order. It's a small island the size of West Virginia, 20 million people sitting smack bang in the middle of a very important sea lanes and uh, communications uh, across the Indian Ocean. So if we were to shoot off an international time capsule into deep space and you could only put one physical object to represent Sri Lanka, what would you put in it? An ancient scroll, the mm-hmm. script of either Buddhist scroll or if it's non-religious, there are a lot of literature that was written on on ola leaf scrolls, just like in India. Maybe that's... Uh, Why? That would be, because it's historic, it go, tracks back many, uh, many uh, hundreds of years, and Sri Lanka has had a written history going back to the time of the Buddha, written by the monks and uh, this is not a religious uh, component it's a really historic record of what of politics and religion and culture in Sri Lanka including uh, international visitors either an old leaf uh, script or a um, or a pillar that has ins- 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 inscriptions in various religious or cultural formats Okay, JT, so if our listeners today were to only remember three key takeaways, what would they be? Well, I think the first um, certainly stands out is that Sri Lanka really is a nation um, and and a democracy that is resilient. Uh, It has overcome a a massive amount of adversity, and I think there's uh, certainly uh, a lot of promise to its future. I couldn't agree with you more, JT. And I would say as a second 
takeaway, despite its history, Sri Lanka is an example of what can happen to even the strongest democracies when they undergo extreme polarization and are susceptible to foreign influence. Yeah, I would say the third is that Sri Lanka's democracy provides a good template and lessons for other democracies to learn from. And and also, I think that the issue of unity and consensus building is something that um, we can all learn from. And, and Sri Lanka certainly put a lot down in terms of uh, giving us good lessons. Well, I think it's time to thank our guest today, JT. First, a big thank you to Dr. Constantino oh, yeah. Xavier, who is incredibly knowledgeable about Sri Lanka and the region. It was fantastic speaking with him today. If you want to learn more about Sri Lanka and other South Asian nations, I highly recommend that you follow his work at Carnegie and on Twitter at Constantino X. A big thank you to Ambassador Subasinghe. He's the president of Bridging Nations, an organization that is dedicated to the relationship among the United States, India, and China. You can follow their work on Twitter at Bridging Nations. And finally, a big thank you to Steve Seema. I definitely encourage that you follow the work that he's doing for IRI in Sri Lanka currently. You can follow him on Twitter at Steve Seema. Yeah, he really flexed his muscles today in terms of providing us with deep, in-depth knowledge of IRI's work in the region and history. So good work, Steve. We look forward to catching up soon. It's the crew. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, subscribe, rate us, Tell your friends about us. Go to our iTunes page. Okay, Google, rate this podcast a five. Alexa, rate this podcast five stars. <laughs> Siri, leave a comment. The awesomest podcast in the world. <laughs> and that's it for today. See you next time. It's the Illinois crew. Raju Malikava Asiyava. So for all of you loyal listeners that have made it this far, congratulations. You've won yourself a hint for next episode. JT? Sure, Chessie. So listeners, this country is one of only two places in the world where Coca-Cola cannot be bought or sold. Seriously? Yeah. Ooh, I'm looking forward to next month. Isn't one of them North Korea? Yes, and it's not that country. Okay. So listeners, if you know, please leave a comment in our comment section with the answer. Email us, podcast at iri.org, or hit us up on Twitter at iri global. We may give you a shout out on air in the next episode.